0: listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley
0: on Dubai Eye three point
1: eight. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 16th of November. And on the show today with 2 weeks to go until the COP28 climate talks we found out how Dubai's Electricity and Water Authority is planning to improve its carbon footprint. That's with the CEO, His Excellency Saeed Mohammed Al Tayer. Meanwhile, airport security in the UK and the US is changing thanks to new scanners. Aviation security expert Professor Sheldon Jacobson explained why it's going to make our trips abroad quicker and easier. And you might have thought that the food served at climate change conferences would be sustainable. Well, it hasn't been until this year. And the change is all thanks to a group of young campaigners. We spoke to Gloria Equia-Agiare, who is a programme officer for the Ghana Youth Environmental Movement plus we found out all about the F&B offerings at Expo City Dubai and why they are going to be sustainable that was with Simon Wright who is head of F&B meanwhile 40 construction workers who are stuck in a collapsed tunnel in India have entered their fifth day confined in a small space in the rubble. But how will rescuers get them out? We spoke to Jonathan Davies, who's the director of Triton Risk Management. And Caviar is getting fish-friendly thanks to new massage techniques. We explained all on the show. Uh, really good to have you with us here on the agenda. And of course, at the moment, we've got the Dubai Show going on. Uh, that is why the Business Breakfast is broadcasting out on location. But it's not the only exhibition in town. In fact, uh, WetX and the Dubai Solar Show are currently taking place over at the Dubai World Trade Center. I actually headed up there yesterday to take a look at what's going on. And of course, it's a big year because we've just got two weeks now until COP28 starts. And as a consequence, you know, what's going on with water and electricity production in the UAE and specifically in Dubai is very important. I mean, most of our carbon footprint, of course, comes from oil and gas production, but most of our personal sort of um, usage, most of our carbon footprint from what we use comes from the water and the electricity we use. And of course, all the water here is basically produced using electricity because it is desalinated. So we wanted to get into the details of what, you know, how exactly Dubai is managing its carbon footprint when it comes to electricity and water. And I'm delighted to say a little earlier, I got to speak to His Excellency Saeed Al Tayer. He is the CEO of the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority. And he explained Diwa's strategies to become more sustainable.
2: Since the future is very clear to us, we have very clear roadmap. We have many initiatives, especially Mohammed bar Solar Park. Presently, we have more than 2,627 megawatt connected to the grid. Also, we have about 1,800 megawatt, phase number six of BV. Uh, this is was uh, awarded one month ago. And also, we have the hydro station. I mean, pump, storage, hydroelectric plant in Hatta. The station will uh, be able to produce 250 megawatt and the storage capacity of 1,500 megawatt hour. And this is the first kind in in the GCC region. And also we have the Green Hydrogen Pilot Project, which is an operation actually connected to the grid. And this is solar-driven hydrogen, and also the production capacity is about 400 kilowatts, and the future will be hydrogen, but I think it will take some time. Uh, Maybe within the next five years, we see prices are coming down. Presently, the prices are uh, very high.
1: When it comes to solar power, obviously you're hosting this Middle East Solar Conference as well at the moment. (laughs) Dubai no. really is a leader when it comes to your solar no. parks. You know, the price of solar power has come down considerably as Correct. a consequence of these massive parks. Yeah. Are you hoping to export that knowledge or, or share that knowledge with other developing countries, for example?
2: Definitely. I mean, we are receiving many delegations from different countries. And you know the, why the price is down in Dubai? Because we have a clear... Uh, Regulation, we have the structure of uh, the RSB, and they would like actually to see how the prices is, is coming down. We've seen the prices actually driven since the last eight years, from 13 cents to 6 cents per kilowatt. So I think because of the good corporate governance and uh, transparency is there, uh, this is the main reason.
1: How about hydrogen? How is that developing? Because you mentioned there that it is still very expensive, but, but indeed you see a yeah. future for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, hydrogen is uh, really it's very expensive. This project, it is uh, actually a partnership between Expo and uh, also Simmons. And total cost of the project was 50 million dirhams. So you're considering 50 million for the 400 kilowatts. I mean, unit cost is very high. Now, future is hydrogen, yes, but it is like solar. When we started with solar, it is also about uh, 15 cents. took us nearly 11 years to uh, bring the prices down. Usually, uh, any new technology, when you try it initially, there is a hike in the price. However, after maybe five years, six years, the price will come down. I mean, from, as I mentioned, 15 cents, to BV solar come down to 1.5 cents, actually six bills. But it will take some time, but it will not be immediate. Hydrogen is very clean energy. It is the main part of our strategy, but we have to look into the, the prices. It is very important because we cannot buy at higher price.
1: I'm very interested by the hydroelectric project. It's up in Hatta, isn't it? Is that nearly finished now? Has it almost started producing electricity?
2: No, no. I think it will take another one year. You know, the situation is there. It is very difficult because you need to break the mountain. You need to make tunnels. It is not easy. It is not like open land. So civil work, it is very hard and very difficult. But the steam turbine, two steam turbines being installed there, each steam turbine size of 125 megawatt. And I think it's a matter of time for the complete installation and to complete the other reservoir, because we are making other reservoir on the top of the existing one. So it's a matter of civil work and also it's a matter of commissioning part.
1: It is a major project up there. I saw um, the, the, I saw a model of it at Wetex yesterday, and it does look like a very exciting project indeed. I mean, keeping on the subject of water, I suppose one of the major sort of elements of our carbon footprint here in the UAE is the fact that we have to desalinate so much of our water. But you've seen innovation in that field as well over the last few months.
2: In the past we used to have a boiler and desalination plant we stopped that why because during the winter we don't have much waste heat but in the summer the production of water is very efficient because we utilize all the waste heat since we have a lot of waste heat from the gas turbine but in the winter the requirement of power is less therefore we need to put auxiliary boiler in order to produce more steam. That, it cost us more. Therefore, we, we brought the technology uh, reverses mosses. Now, what we going to see in the future, more plant from RO plant or mosses technology, which is very cost-effective and also environmental-friendly. It will be connected to the
1: Mohammed Barashid solar park. It all sounds like a very joined up strategy. And do you see any hurdles in Dubai's move towards more sustainable power? Is there anything that keeps you up at night?
2: No, I don't think so. Why? Because the technology, the innovation is there. When we started the first project, the efficiency was 10%. Presently, the efficiency is 24%. Therefore, I think we will be able to finish ahead of time
1: really interesting there and a great pleasure to speak to his excellency saeed mohammed al tayer he is ceo of the dubai electricity and water authority speaking here on the agenda on dubai I 103.8 now we're going to turn our attention away uh, from sustainability issues back to the other big subject the other big theme for this week which is of course aviation we've heard lots from the business breakfast about uh, people buying planes and uh, people basically advancing their networks uh, or actually their aviation networks but we're going to talk about security because hopefully the introduction of several brand new types of scanners should make your passage through international airports far more efficient in the coming few months we'll get more details in the next few minutes
0: you are listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is the agenda
0: on Dubai I
1: 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Lovely to have you listening. It is 1022, and we are taking a look now at one of the most irritating elements of travelling through an airport. And it has to be the security check. I mean, how many times? How many times have you had to like down a bottle of water determined not to throw it away? Or, I mean, throw away an expensive bottle of makeup because it happens to be 120 mils rather than 100. When I was going, um, when I was traveling in Europe this summer, I was trying not to pay for luggage. So I was putting everything in my hand luggage. And uh, it was OK because I had the kids traveling with me so I could use their allowance as well. But literally stuffing my cosmetics in tiny plastic bags and then desperately trying to pop at the top of them so that I could get everything through. Um It really felt utterly ridiculous. Um, And the good news is, is that the next time you travel through the US or the UK, you probably won't need to worry about it because after 17 years of restrictions, the liquid rule is being phased out. And it's all thanks to 3D scanners that are being installed in the airports. To find out more about the impact that that's likely to have on our travel through far-flung terminals, a little earlier, I spoke to Professor Sheldon Jacobson. He is an aviation security expert Expert from the University of Illinois. And he told me that the tech could herald a major shift in airport procedures.
3: What the UK is introducing is a technology called computed tomography. It provides a 3D image similar to what you'd find in a doctor's office if you have a break or some kind of pain and they need to do a more intense x-ray. This three-dimensional picture gives you a much more complete idea of what is, in fact, in a carry-on bag. The U.S. is also introducing this, and the U.K. is very aggressive in what they're trying to accomplish because they want to do away with the so-called liquid ban, Liquids have been banned for several years now because of the threat of explosives being brought into an airplane. The fact is that the UK is, is banking on or investing in this technology so that they can relax the liquid ban. And that's exactly what they're doing right now.
1: Are these machines being rolled out in all British airports or only in the big ones? Are they expensive machines?
3: They're being rolled out sequentially in a variety of the major airports right now around the UK. There are different sizes for them. So uh, on average, they run around $1 million or around, we're saying like seven to 800,000 uh, pounds. Uh, they are expensive and they are sophisticated and they use some artificial intelligence to do some interpretation based on the software they input. So this is a game changer because it's such a great capability. It has the ability to look at potentially liquids and other items in three dimensions to discern whether in fact there is an explosive in a carry-on bag however you have to be careful because ultimately it's not the threat that's the problem but it's the threatener the bad actor who's doing this and those devices don't do anything about them So the United States and the UK are a little different right now in how they're trying to use these devices in the sense that the UK believes that they can do away with the liquid ban because liquid explosives are a real risk. The United States is a little more measured and cautious that they realize that the multiple layers of airport security are such that They don't want to do things too quickly. And this measured approach means that the UK is being more aggressive, the the US is being a little more concerned, shall we say, or slower and, and more paused.
1: How is it that countries gauge the security risk of each and every passenger? Is there a specific of doing it in the industry?
3: Well, every every person carries with them risk. The good news is that almost everybody has very little risk. Most travelers are completely benign to the system. If that wasn't the case, we'd have problems, obviously. However, because of that, you're trying to find a needle in the haystack. And finding a needle in a haystack is very, very challenging. So what you try and do is use technologies to find threat items that can potentially indicate that the traveler is a risk threat themselves. The United States also uses risk-based security, which means that they look at the passenger themselves and all the information surrounding them. One of the big advances that's being used in the United States right now and also being introduced in the UK is biometrics, which means that are you the person you claim to be? And that is a game changer. That is really going to transform airport security, not just in the short term, but over the next five and 10 years, so that at some point, who you are is going to be even more important than what you're carrying.
1: That's so interesting to hear about, because I think we have the biometric devices here in the UAE. They just seem to read your iris or read your face as you go through the automatic scanners. And of course, that's reduced the amount of border staff that are needed.
3: This is a game changer because anyone who wants to be a bad actor and cause harm in the air system, the last thing they want to do is expose who who they are. They will hide and they will obfuscate their identity as much as possible. The fact is, if you know who each person is, what you're doing is that that needle and haystack metaphor, you're taking 95, 98, 99% of the haystack and you're saying there's no needles in it and you're left with such a small part, it's much easier to find those bad actors. This is a major game changer and biometrics is based on using artificial intelligence. This is how the technology is advancing in airport security which is really going to change the terrain over the next five, 10 years and more.
1: And of course, from a passenger perspective, since most of us just want to get through the airport as quickly as possible, these new advances in both liquid scanners and also in biometrics ultimately just mean that it's not going to take as long to get through security.
3: It's going to not only take less time, it's going to be less intrusive, but what you're providing is information about yourself. So depending on how you, in fact, view the privacy issue, there is a trade-off here between giving up a little bit of your privacy in exchange for the convenience of traveling almost seamlessly through an airport system.
1: That is Professor Sheldon Jacobson. He is an aviation security expert from the University of Illinois, explaining why the next time you travel through a remote terminal in the US or the UK, hopefully it could be a lot quicker as you go through security. This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Welcome back to the show. Right, I don't know about you, but Dubai is feeling like the centre of the universe right now for rich people. Um, You know, we've got house prices soaring. There's a new restaurant, a new luxurious restaurant opening sort of every other week, major resorts opening, and we're just coming into the winter season when, of course, all the Europeans come over uh, for a bit of summer, a bit of winter sun. And as a consequence... I wonder, and this is my theory, I wonder whether more caviar is eaten over the winter season in Dubai than anywhere else in the world. But I wonder if um, you've ever thought about how it's harvested or indeed whether that process might be cruel. I have honestly, until this point, never given it a second thought, Uh, probably because I don't eat it a great deal, to be honest. But it transpires that actually it used to be a very cruel procedure because the sturgeon fish, which grow to up to six metres long, are routinely killed for their eggs, which is, of course, what the caviar is. But now there are new methods, which I understand involve massaging the fish instead. And that has led to the rise of no-kill caviar. And it's an ethical alternative that it's hoped could help protect the world's sturgeon stocks in the future. But how do you massage a fish? Let's find out. I'm joined now by John Addy, who is the co-founder of KC Caviar, which was one of the world's first fully ethical caviar firms. John, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the line. I've got to start with the question, how do you massage a fish?
4: Thank you for inviting me. First of all, yes, we do massage the fish's tummy. um, Just the same as you would um, when you're spawning a fish. So you lay it on a specially designed bed so it can't fall off and literally start at one end and just massage the eggs out of the vent.
1: And that uh, means that your sturgeon can go on its merry way, continue with its life and and maybe make you some more eggs?
4: Yes, the, they'll produce eggs maybe every year or 18 months, something like that. But the The main point that we're trying to get across to people is you don't have to kill sturgeon. And we've been to a couple of sturgeon caviar farms about uh, 10 years ago, and we saw the process that other farms put the fish through, which is horrendous. I won't even bother to try explain on here, but it is horrendous. So we decided that we would try to find a way to produce the caviar without killing the sturgeon We came across a process which is being used in Germany and um, we signed up to that and um, up until today, we're the only caviar farm in the world actually producing caviar on a no-kill basis using that process.
1: Is it more expensive? Does it make your caviar more pricey? Or or actually, you'd have thought that because you're not killing the fish, surely that's actually uh, better for your bottom
4: line? Yes. Over a period of time, our process will be cheaper. However, the way that the traditional farmer kills the fish, he has fish which are in a lake, he nets the lake, catches all the fish, and kills every one of them and takes the eggs out of the fish. We don't do that. Our process probably starts about six months before we actually take the eggs out because we start. we control the water temperature, we control the lighting, we control the water quality, we control the feeding programme, we know how much food the fish has eaten, and we also handle the fish almost every day.
1: And that is to so get we, the fish used to being massaged, so to speak.
4: Exactly, exactly, yes. So we will actually lift her out of the water and put her back, back in the water. So she knows it's not a bad thing, you know, we just lift us up, put us back down again, and that's the end of it.
1: My goodness me, that sounds like you have much more of a a, a a farmer's relationship with the fish. You know, much more like farmers who own cows and goats, for example. Whereas in the past, it sounds like the, the farmers never really engaged with the animals themselves until they were ready to kill them.
4: Well, actually, up, up until about um, 10 years ago, caviar but wasn't made by farmed sturgeon. It was for sturgeon which they'd caught in the rivers and the lakes and the seas. And um, they just caught them, killed them, took out the eggs and then took the eggs to somewhere to get them repacked. So, yeah, nobody had a relationship with the sturgeon until we came along.
1: How many do you have?
4: Not many. We, <laughs> we had 468 um, until pre-pandemic time. And then because of the pandemic, there are all sorts of issues that we had, and so we had to remove the move the fish and move to a different farm. And so now we're building a completely new farm, which which is not so much a sturgeon caviar farm, it's a sturgeon preservation and education center. So really what we're trying to do is educate the public all around the world about the sturgeon and the plight. Um the the fish which are actually out in the wild at the moment so this is wild adult sturgeon is less than 700 really in the whole world what yeah. really in the whole world less than 700
1: my goodness no um, one talks about the no one talks about sturgeon in the same way as they do you know endangered rhinos but that's about the same number isn't it
4: actually sturgeon is the most endangered species on the planet
1: that, I mean, that so is,
4: there are yeah. more rhinos than there are sturgeon in the wild.
1: This is absolutely extraordinary. I'm learning so much from this interview. So tell me, if you are going out to eat today in Dubai and you're asking for caviar, how can you be sure that it's cruelty-free? Or sadly, is the reality that most of it is from killed fish?
4: We can only produce so much in this country and we sell out every single year. And that's a a big problem. So we're encouraging farmers all around the world to come see us and we'll tell them what to do, how to do it, and um, help them. Because we don't see them as competitors. We're seeing them as helping us on our voyage. And our voyage is to help save the sturgeon. So if a a company came to us and they were in Dubai um, or they are in Timbuktu and said, right, we would like to open a sturgeon caviar farm, what do we do? We'll tell them.
1: John Addy, it is a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, John is the co-founder of KC Caviar, uh, which is one of the world's first fully ethical caviar firms. Welcome back to The Agenda. We're going to turn our attention now to the preparations for the COP28 climate change talks, and specifically the catering uh, because tens of thousands of hungry delegates are going to be descending on Expo City in the coming weeks, literally just two weeks to go. And um, although it seems like something of a, you know, it should be a given, really, that there would be food and water available, that has not always been the case. I remember when Brandy Scott went to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Um, the sort of main message that I got back from her over the first couple of days was that there wasn't any food. Like, they. There wasn't any food. Uh, You know, there would would be queues of sort of 200 people for a a single sandwich bar. And then when you got to the sandwich bar, um, it wasn't actually very tasty. And certainly no one was talking about whether or not it was sustainable. But this year, the organisers at COP28 in Dubai say there will be no such issues. There will be plenty of food on offer and sustainable catering is a huge focus for the event. And that is in part thanks to a long-running advocacy campaign from global youth groups to make the event's catering more environmentally friendly. To find out more about that campaign, a little earlier, I sat down with Gloria Equia Agari. She is a programme officer for the Ghana Youth Environmental Movement. She's also an active member of the Youth Climate Movement, which is known as Yungo. And she said, that basically their campaign success has been a very long time coming.
5: Over the past three and a half years, we've been asking at COP post countries to provide catering menus or feature climate-friendly food at this largest or the biggest climate conference to reflect the urgency of climate crisis and also set a precedent for putting food system transformation on the menu. So that has been our objective.
1: And I understand yeah. that this year, for the first time, you have had some success. You you feel your voices have
5: been heard. Yes. Earlier this year in April on F Day, we sent a letter to the COP twenty-eight presidency. This is under the umbrella of Yongo Food and Agriculture Working Group, which I'm a member of, and then Food at COP campaign, which is also under Yongo. And we did this with the support of Provenge International. We wrote a letter to the COP28 presidency, requesting him to ensure that the food served at COP is climate-friendly. We wanted to ensure that three quarter or 75% of the food served at COP is plant-based. And then also we added that this food should be affordable because we know we have young people even coming in from diverse backgrounds who do not have enough money to buy food or to get food from these big conferences. So we ask that the food there are affordable, nutritious, regionally sourced, where feasible, and also culturally inclusive. Our third act was on ensuring a clear emissions label, ensuring that that is displayed on all food options for people to know the carbon footprint of each and every food that has been stepped there. So, yeah, from there, we had a response from him in May, and that really fostered our confidence to push this campaign further. So that was how it started. His response was very positive. He wanted to also work with us to ensure that this goal is met. And I think for me, that was a great milestone for us as young people. I have to say, what is astonishing in many ways is that
1: this wasn't applicable at previous COPs. You would have thought that the organisers would want to put their, you know, their money where their mouth was effectively. And yet it feels Mm. like
5: this is the first COP that they're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Because we have championed this for so many years. For us, it's a great step to ensuring that we build that sustainable future we envision As people on a global scale. So why do you think you were successful this time? This campaign really focused on collaboration and the fact that the young people also on board who championed this campaign are people from diverse backgrounds. I'm from Ghana. I'm the only one from Ghana. We had one person from East Africa, two people from um, Uganda, and then we had other people from Kenya, we had people from Morocco, US. So it was really diverse, Brazil and all the other countries coming on board to push this. For me, it's 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 a sign that, one, we can do things together if we really want to push this. Partnership, which is part of the SDG goals, were one of the main things that were met through this campaign. And also diversity, the diversity of the people on board really enriches the campaign because it shows that you can bring people from diverse backgrounds to align to a common goal and ensure that that sustainable future is built. So for me, I think that these things are very pivotal if we want to push the agenda of creating a sustainable environment for our generation and the next generation as well. Can I ask you for... A sort of
1: overarching view of your hopes and fears for the upcoming COP28. Despite all the sort of disappointments of the past, are you hopeful that we could see real progress in December?
5: Yes, I think we should expect more. Um, we are very pleased with the two-thirds commitment of the COP28 presidency to ensure that this COP is climate-friendly. And we believe that in the coming years, this is not just the first step, but this is a step into something more sustainable. So, we believe that from this step forward, we are not going back. There's no retrogression. We want to move a step further to see the other cops learn from this example, you know, and carry on that agenda of ensuring that the food served within that two weeks at every cop is climate friendly.
1: That is Gloria Equia Agiari, a programme officer for the Ghana youth environmental movement and an active member of the youth climate movement, which is also known as Yungo. <laughs>
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Yeah, we're talking about the food options out at Expo City today because uh, it might seem like something of a given that food served at a COP28 climate change would have a sustainable focus. But intriguingly, the catering options at previous events have often made the headlines for all the wrong reasons. I actually said this earlier, but um, Brandy was at COP27 in Egypt. And for the first couple of days, there wasn't any food, um, but, you know, which Brandy said was great for, for you know, focusing the mind. Uh, lots of Silicon Valley Billionaires like to fast, but I'm not sure it necessarily made for uh, cheerful delegates. Now, this year's the organisers of COP28 in Dubai say there'll be no such issues and sustainable catering is a huge focus for the event. There'll be plenty of plant-based options and they will be priced reasonably for all budgets. And in fact, as I speak, final preparations are underway for the opening of dozens of new food concepts on the Expo City site with environmental impact very much on the agenda. So I'm excited to say uh, that we can talk about those restaurants now. Um, And I am joined in the studio by Simon Wright, who is head of F&B at Expo City Dubai. Something of a dream job, Simon, I imagine. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Tell me, how has this sustainable focus for the food at the Expo site come about?
6: So I think um, it's really always been a key pillar of every sort of everything that happens at Expo City uh, and and certainly around the food and beverage offer. um, Having been involved pre-event time, during event time, it was always a a key thing that was looked at at every single point. You know, the the type of chefs that we were working with, their commitment to sustainable practices, um, food safety, food security, um, you know, down to the basics. So you expect things like that, you know, using the right packaging, working with the right level of products and being very plant forward uh, in the offers that we were doing as well.
1: So you were in charge of F&B for Expo 2020 as well, then.
6: Yes, yes. Oversaw oh, the, wow. the commercial F&B at the time as well. Ran a few operations, uh, looked after the marketing and the uh, and the strategy around the food and beverage office. So yeah. Uh, Second time I'm getting to do the uh, kid in a candy shop type uh, uh, yeah. opportunity. So yeah, very you're lucky.
1: All these uh, brand new concepts. And obviously the legacy of Expo City was in part laid out. You know, plans were already laid out, you know, even when Expo 2020 was first conceived. Yeah. OK, so tell me what we've got to look forward to then.
6: So we've got some really exciting things coming up. Um, we've we've tried to get a balance of, of new, interesting and innovative food and beverage. Uh, we've got a few local favourites that are coming to join us, uh, initially on a sort of a pop-up seasonal basis. So looking at the next six months, uh, they're all starting to open up at the moment. We've got some wonderful... Local sort of uh, favorites such as Reform, Bistro Desar, Vietnamese foodies. Uh, The Amanotti team are coming to do a wonderful new development of of theirs. So they're going to actually start doing some Japanese comfort food for lunch and dinner on top of all the wonderful. Uh, bakery products so we're very excited to have those guys joining us uh, we've got a few expo favorites that are coming back to life as well so there's uh, uh another bread ahead um story yes, opening for the, the wonderful donuts. donuts donuts and pizza that keeps everyone uh, with a big <laughs> smile on their face
1: everyone loved the donuts <laughs> exactly and yeah. you know i was a journalist during that time so i got 15 percent off there were a lot of donuts in my house during that time her, to
6: yeah. say. Not, not great for the waistline, generally, though some it's of a us disaster. found out. But, it was a disaster, yes. Uh, uh, put, a, put a smile on everyone's face. Um, we've also got floozy cookies coming back um, and also the wonderful Al-Kabulin for world's first African dining hall, uh, all ready to reopen uh, in the next couple of weeks fully as well. So that's exciting. And on top of that, we've got some wonderful new first-to-market concepts, and we've tried to get a balance with uh, some international chefs uh, coming to do some interesting but accessible offers for us as well. There's, this is not about doing sort of lots of swanky fine dining. It's about doing very accessible offers, so there's something there for everybody. Uh, we've got the wonderful chef Tommy from Baron in Beirut is doing his new assembly concept, so wonderful sort of Eastern Mediterranean flavors. Uh, Rohit Guy, the Michelin star chef from London, uh, opened his lovely new Gop and shop for us. Just opened up last week. Amazing Indian street foods happening in there. Uh, we've got Oli Debus from London, the Michelin star chef, is doing his lovely Hideaway Cafe. Um, we've got uh, Chef Sarah um, Ackle doing Safar. Um, so uh, she was the head chef for and the the sort of the creative drive behind Filia at the SLS Hotel. So this is her first standalone oh, restaurant. Yeah. Uh, chef um, uh, Faisal Nasser as well coming to do a wonderful Manushi concept. So lots of different things happening and uh, all coming to life over the next few weeks.
1: I mean, that is a lot of food and beverage options how many is that that you just listed like are you doing like 20 or 30 uh, I
6: think we I think we end up with 28 different food and beverage offers that will be there sort of uh in permanence uh launching over the next few weeks and then continuing to the future
1: but I know I'm supposed to talk to you about sustainability and I, and I will ask you another question in a sec but realistically there aren't that many people living and working out there yet so is the aim to sort of make Expo City a foodie destination, as such, are you hoping that these F and B offerings will be a reason for people to go out to Expo City?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we we all know we know about Dubai's love affair with the, with the food yes. restaurant going out industry. It's a, it's a key part of entertainment of everyone's life here. Uh, So we feel by putting together something very interesting, new to market, but balancing it as well with local talents, you know, local favorites. So there's something there really for everybody. Uh, We feel that's going to be a great reason for people to go and and visit Expo City. There is a surprising number of people, though, that are living and working in the area as well. The offices are already starting to fill up. Uh, You've got Expo Village next door as well with people already living there Uh, and and people coming at the weekend just, you know, to, to sort of visit what's such a beautiful walkable site Um, so we've we've got people coming and we've got some interesting other events and festivals that we'll be announcing over the next few weeks as well to give even more reasons to go there
1: it is gorgeous Um, I'm sure Jen won't mind me saying that producer Jen has chosen to live out there and she genuinely loves the site as well let's talk about sustainability just for one last question you know 28 restaurants We don't have a huge amount of food grown here in the UAE. I think there's more than people realise. But how are you managing to encourage all of those restaurant owners? You know, everyone in the F&B industry has tight margins. How are you encouraging them to to keep one big eye on eco-friendly food?
6: So I think we're trying to work together as a bit of a collective on it, because the more we work as an industry, the more we support each other, the more we sort of get economies of scale Working with the sort of local farmers, the local producers, because you know if they don't have sort of you know confirmation of supply, it makes it difficult for them to grow the offer that they're able to offer. So getting us all working together, whether it's you know food buying, you know other operating equipment, obviously packaging is always a, a very sort of hot topic. Um, so we've worked really hard to get the whole sort of F and B um, you know community there that's coming to join us at Expo City to to be working with those sort of things in mind. So we've we've we're hopefully in the right direction and and uh, focusing on. All of those sort of, you know, buying the right things, using the right things and treating them treating them properly when we have them.
1: Prioritisation. Simon Wright. That was a very interesting interview indeed. 28 restaurants coming out to that Expo City site. That really is uh, quite fun. Um, I, I'm, I'm, Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I'm just looking forward to lunch. <laughs> but my level of excitement for that is sort of quite off the scale. Uh, Simon Wright, head of F&B at Expo City Dubai. Thank you so much for coming Thank into so the much, studio. It's been a it. pleasure. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Welcome back to the show, taking a look now at an international story because 40 construction workers who are stuck in a collapsed tunnel in Uttarakhand in India are entering their fifth day confined in a small space in the rubble and they are starting to get ill. Rescue efforts have so far failed due to falling debris. Hopes are now pinned on an advanced drilling machine that's been brought in. So how do you rescuers manage these types of disasters? I'm joined now by an expert, Jonathan Davies, who is the director of Triton Risk Management. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me on Teams. Tell me, what is the the first step in a situation like this where you're trying to free people uh, from a dangerous contained situation?
7: The, the the most important thing is the accuracy of the information that you've got to, to work with. Um, one of the one of the key uh, key elements to any incident is the information gathering stage uh, without that uh, the rescue provisions in the dark um, and and obviously then starts to potentially put other people in more danger so the the, the first thing that although it's, a, it's not a great situation but one of the key uh, the key factors with this one is that they've made communication or they've managed to uh, um have a, a, a constant link of, of communication and and being able to get really basic supplies to the people that are trapped that then allows the rescuers and the and the people managing the incident to 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 to, to have the ability to to then build a strategy based on very uh, very accurate information as opposed to, to 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 a situation where they they're pretty much in the dark
1: It must be very tempting to to rush in, you know, especially if you get a sense that, you know, a further collapse at any minute could put these people at, at further risk. But I guess once you've got your strategy, is it then often about the proper machinery in these situations rather than people just trying to dig them out.
7: I think. I think again. One of the one of the key things that, that um, historically has been uh, been been sadly um, learned. The hard way is not to put anybody else in danger. And and there's 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 many an occasion where where with the best will in the world and it's all been done with, with the right intentions. Sadly, other people have lost their lives um, in the in the uh, in the uh, in the attempt to, to rescue others. So it's as much as we, as much as I'm sure everybody there wants to get these people out as soon as possible. It's the, the, the key thing is not to have further casualties on the rescue side. So whatever, whatever, uh, whatever strategy, whatever means and methods are looked at, looked at the The key thing is not to put anybody else uh, in danger, or as, or as or minimise that danger as much as as much as you can. Clearly, in a situation like this, there's always going to be a level of danger, but it's got to be dynamically assessed so that so that it's it's that the balance is always risk versus benefit. Um, and in this situation right now, as long as the status quo can be maintained and the people are relatively relatively comfortable, I appreciate it's not great and. They are, you know it won't be a particularly uh, a particularly nice environment to be in but if as long as the status quo can be maintained then then the rescue effort needs to be a little bit more calculated and it and it and and, and again the 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 level of risk that you put the rescuers at would would need to would need to reflect that
1: Jonathan Davies, I really appreciate you joining us on the line. Thank you very much uh, for talking to us on the agenda on Dubai 103.8. Jonathan Davies, there, the Director of Triton Risk Management. Uh, we will be checking back in with Jonathan as this story develops, and, and fingers crossed, uh, that new drilling machine will indeed enable those four construction workers to be released. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.